Good morning, everyone. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John. This will be our new series. We're going to be preaching on 1 John, the epistle. Hopefully, uh, you'll get to know this one and love this one. So read it, reread it, think about it, ponder it. We'll be preaching on this one through Easter season and, well, as long as it takes to get through the epistle of 1 John. So let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, as we come before you this morning to hear your word preached and proclaimed, Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us. Close our ears to any error that I may speak. Lord, John was such an amazing man. He was such an amazing apostle. The one who lived to such a ripe old age, who had so much to teach, but is often overlooked, at least his epistles, Father. The gospel we know, the epistles we don't know. Lord, I pray that you would help us to meditate on this epistle, this most blessed of epistles. <clears throat> Lord, I, in, in these next coming months, Father, that we would think about them, that we would memorize portions of them. Lord, that we would dwell on them, that we would soak in them, that they would become a part of us, Lord and that we would put them into practice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, hopefully I will preach this one a lot better than I practiced this one this morning. It came out like mud every once in a while. You have that one, so I may uh, actually spend a little more time reading this one than I usually do in my sermons. Um, John is written by the same apostle who wrote the Gospel of John. So if you know your apostles, John is one of the big three, right? There's Peter, there's James, and there's John. And those were the three that were the closest to Jesus. They're tight with Jesus. They're in his inner circle. Now, he has 12 disciples. He walks around with all of them, uh, and so we know them. And Peter, of course, uh, was probably behind the gospel of Mark. That's why we think Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. And we know from early historians and early, uh, not early apostles, but some of the early disciples of the disciples, that the gospel of Mark was really the gospel of Peter, okay? Uh, Matthew is attributed to Matthew, but he never actually says he's Matthew, and that's one of the disciples. Luke is an eyewitness, but Luke walks around with Paul and Barnabas and several of the apostles, but he's an eyewitness, and he takes an account from a lot of the apostles, and that's why Luke is recorded in the gospels, okay? But John is an apostle, and so he writes, he's the last of the apostles to die, and he writes the gospel of John. He also writes Revelation. Now, John is the last of the gospels, and so we know about this. And when John writes that, and I've talked to you about that before, John writes the gospel. He knows that there's other gospels out there. We don't actually know how many other gospels there were, we know that there's a big fire in the, in the Library of Alexandria, and in the Library of Alexandria had a ton of material, probably as much material um, as was written from the time of the Library of Alexandria fire until our age. Um, that's, it was a massive library, and there was this huge fire, and it destroyed all of this stuff. And we think that all these materials were destroyed. And then there were all kinds of invasions uh, in the kind of the dark ages, but before that, there were all kinds of invasions and all kinds of things were destroyed. And so all kinds of materials were destroyed. We're not sure how much got destroyed in those ages and how many gospels there were. But that said, 
John looked at these other Gospels and he said there were plenty of great Gospels and so John wrote his Gospel to fill in the gaps later on. His, his disciples said, hey, I want you to write some stuff. And John said, there's other good ones out there. I'm just going to write my gospel to fill in the gaps and to explain different things. And that's what he does. But he also writes these epistles. And many people kind of skip over these epistles. They don't really think about them. We love to think about Paul's epistles, and we think about Hebrews. And we sometimes think about James. But we don't really think about John's epistles as much. And I'm here to tell you that if you don't think about John's epistles in the same way that you think about Paul's epistles, you're making a huge mistake. The, the longer I've been preaching, and, and, and this is what I've really come to realize because I didn't really think about it as much. The longer I've been preaching, the more I realize that I quote from 1 John and 2 John. The more I come back to these epistles the more I realize how deep John is. Now, I know his gospel is deep. And, and the longer I go, the more deep I realize. Like, I'm doing a Bible study in John on Thursday that is just amazing. Like, like if you've been in the John Bible study, the more those, the, the guys and, and, and uh, Lori, who's with me, um, it's just endless how deep this gospel is. And that's fascinating to us. But the more I preach, the more I find that I'm quoting John in this, gospel, in this epistle. It's just amazing how deep this book is. And so uh, as we begin to look at this epistle, I think as we mine it and as we unpack it, I think you'll find out why. It needs to be part of your understanding of the faith. It's every bit as important. Romans, and Corinthians, and Hebrews are critical to your understanding but John is critical for a very different reason. It's not more important than those, but it is as important as those. And we're going to find out why. And so I want you to pay attention to this epistle. And hopefully, as we unpack it, as we preach on it over the next uh, few months, a couple months, or however long it takes, uh, you will get to understand it. Now, one of the things that you need to know about John uh, in 64 A.D. or around 64 A.D., there was a tremendous tragedy in the church. Does anybody know what happened around 64 A.D.? There was the death of two major apostles, Peter and Paul, under Nero. One was beheaded, right, Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen, and so he got his head chopped off. The other one was crucified upside down. Peter decided that he wasn't worthy to die like the Lord, Jesus, and so he asked to be crucified upside down. But you can imagine in the church at that point that those two apostles were major players in the church. And if you were the church in those days and you saw Peter and John, I mean Peter and Paul martyred, you were devastated. Everybody was devastated. Now the the Apostle James was one of the first martyrs. He was thrown off the temple early on. Many of the other apostles were already gone by then. Now, we know from the historian Eusebius, Eusebius had access to all kinds of records, that the other apostles were all martyred. But we don't have records of a lot of what they did, and here's why. We know that one went off into India. We know that others went off into Russia. 
in that area and in northern Europe. We know that others went off into Africa. And we don't have records of any of their writings. Now, maybe they did write, but some of them probably went into areas where there were no written languages. And they went and they preached the gospel. And they were killed. And they were killed in nasty ways. All of them met awful ways, right? They were crucified in awful ways. They were skinned alive. They had some nasty, nasty ends. And they all died for the gospel. So these guys knew what it was to serve Jesus, and they knew what it was to die for Jesus. But not John. John is the last of the apostles to survive. And he makes it all the way. Now, he, does, he suffers. He's imprisoned. He goes through all kinds of bad things. But he dies somewhere in the 90s. And so by the time he writes the Gospel of John and these epistles, he's an old man. And that makes these epistles and the Gospel pretty special. Because he's now lived his life as an apostle, and he has seen the evolution of the church. He has seen the evolution of the gospel. He has seen it now applied in the Roman Empire. He has seen it applied among the Greeks and the Corinthians and the Egyptians. He has seen it applied in Jerusalem. He has seen people die for their faith. He has seen them die in the gladiatorial games. He has seen them come out on the other side. He has seen a couple of emperors. He has seen all kinds of things go on. And now he's an old man, and he is writing, looking back. And so I would submit to you that when you have the revelation and the gospel of John and now these epistles, he is writing with a tremendous amount of wisdom that even the other apostles did not have when they were writing theirs. They were still writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which makes those things pretty awesome. But John has a special wisdom that he's writing with, and that makes these epistles, that's why they're so uh, rich and deep. They're worth understanding. And, and people sometimes miss that because John writes with a simple style. I often tell preachers this, especially young preachers coming out of seminary, but I have older preachers, too, that never understand this. So many preachers want to use 25-cent words when they come out of seminary. Seminary profs used to drill us on this constantly. Stop using sophisticated words. Right? People want to come out all the time and just impress you with their vocabulary. As if that makes them intelligent. That does not if you cannot explain the most sophisticated things in ways that a 12-year-old can understand them, you are not a good preacher, and you are not that sharp. You're just not that good a teacher. And that's what we learned in seminary, right? You have to be able to do it. Doesn't mean there aren't brainiacs out there that, you know, you know what I'm saying, though. And that's what they would tell us. And that's what John is. John explains it very simply. He's a deep man, but he wants his people to understand it. He loves people. He cares about people. He wants them to know it. He wants you to know it and me to know it. And his overarching thing is that you know the love of Jesus. And he wants to pass it on. 
He wants you to get it. And that's what he does. John starts out in a similar fashion in, to the gospel. Through the, and the, the difference is important. So in his gospel, he starts out talking about in the beginning, right? In Arche. But in 1 John, he says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Right? That's how he starts. In the gospel prologue, he starts out in, with in the beginning also, which brings us naturally back to Genesis 1, which also says in the beginning, right? So in arche in Greek, in the beginning. Here also in arche. This is intentional. Now we're not sure the order in which John writes these things. We just know that one, it, they both have the same. But in John, when he says in the beginning, in, in the first, in the gospel, he's intentionally drawing you back to Genesis because he wants you to understand that Jesus was in the beginning. Right? So in the beginning, when there was the creation, there was Jesus. And then he begins to unpack that and says, look, he was the word. He was there. And he's trying to explain this to Jews and to Greeks and to Romans and to Egyptians and to everyone. And he's explaining it in a philosophical language. And so it is complex, but he writes it in a simple form, but he writes a deep idea. Again, John is very sharp and he gets these things. He has deep understanding, but he writes it in a simple form. So you can be very sharp and understanding, have deep intellect, but he's getting it across to the 12-year-old, right? He's a great teacher. He has love. So probably a better way to say what I was saying in the earlier part is, not that you're not sharp, but you have love and intention. You want to get it across. That's what he's doing. So John sets that out in the first 18 verses. He understands, he wants to show that Jesus is God and man. That's what he's setting forth in the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. And he spends the rest of the Gospel unpacking who Jesus is. And the entire Gospel of John is unpacking the prologue. And so if you understand the prologue, and then you begin to read the Gospel of John, everything reverts back to the prologue. And as we are studying and we are unpacking that in our study on John, I constantly refer our folks back to that, right? And they're amazed, and we are all amazed at how much those two are connected. Now, here in the beginning, or in Arxis in 1 John, right, it starts also with Arches, right? But it says this, the purpose of this letter is not to convince the readers of the deity of Christ as in the prologue. Here, it's to spread the good news and to testify what John has seen. Now, the purpose of the gospel was different. You can have the same purpose while still trying to get across different points. So he also wants to show you that Jesus is God, but he wants to do it for a different reason. In both areas, he wants to show you that Jesus has deity, 
but he wants to do it for a different reason. And so he uses the same terms, but for different points. He wants different points. Here the audience is like us. Here the audience is pretty far removed from when Jesus was alive. Two or three generations away at least. And they would not have had a memory of Jesus at all, even even in his area. So if they were Jewish, they would not have had a memory of Jesus. No one would have seen him. All right? And so now he's got to explain that to them. There were no videos. There were no pictures. Right? And so people wouldn't believe that he rose from the dead. People even in his day didn't believe that. And no one outside of his region would have had a memory of Jesus at all. So it was easy to discount this thing happened. So John mentions that we're talking to you about a thing, not an idea. About a person, not a concept. And a person that we have actually touched and heard. That's what he says at the beginning. This thing I'm about to tell you, we, whoever we are, we have seen it. We have seen him. We have touched him. We have spoken to him. I'm about to tell you about a person that we know. And that's critical. It's an answer to the very same doubter to which the gospel story in John 20 is directed. John 20, 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, and it's the same thing we just read in our gospel passage this morning. That's why Jesus ate the fish, by the way. Why do you think Jesus ate the fish? To prove he was real, what do you think the disciples were expecting when he ate the fish? If you were a spirit and you ate fish, what was going to happen? Bloom. That's why he ate the fish. Touch me, guys. Touch me. And then they touch and they're like, well, we don't believe. Now, give me a piece of fish. Jesus understands what they're thinking. So Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And so John is writing to the doubters, right? That's what he's doing in the gospel. And here again, he's writing to the doubters. And so he says, in case you doubt, look, I have seen him. I have touched him. I know this Jesus. So... We are the doubters, and this is who John is writing to. No way, this could never have happened. So do we think in our current generation that we are the only generation of doubters? There have always been doubters. Look, the people in first century were just like us. They didn't believe that resurrections happened. We think they were fools. We think, look, we are so intellectual in our day, right? And and in that day, they they were ignorant. We're not ignorant that they were ignorant. But you're not reading the gospel story. Why did they touch him? Because they doubted. They didn't believe it could happen. Why did they give him fish? Because they doubted. They didn't believe it could happen. It's the same thing that we would do today. If you saw Jesus, you would touch his hands and his side and give him something to eat because you wouldn't believe it. You would think you're seeing something just like they did. They're the same as us. We think people in previous centuries were somehow lesser and dumber or more ignorant than us. They aren't. 
They don't have the science like us, but it didn't mean they thought that these things happened. Nobody had risen from the dead. Nobody had ever done it. Well, Lazarus, right before that, Jesus had raised him. But even then, they still didn't believe it. <clears throat> so the message of the gospel was every bit in, as ridiculous in John's day as ours. So 1 John 1, 2 through 4, he goes on, This life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the gospel message here is worth listening to, it's worth paying attention to, and it's worth following. It is this, and is in essence what John is saying, right? That's what he's saying. Notice the reason, because this is the reason that we too are called to share the faith, so that others may join the family. You too are called to have fellowship with us and the Father and the Son. That's what John is saying. Now, the rest of this letter is, in essence, going to explain that. He's going to explain why we need to have fellowship. John is fundamentally, 1 John is fundamentally a love letter. It's a love letter about the love of God. It's deep and it's powerful, but it's written very simply. And that's why people overlook it. It doesn't have a lot of theology, right? A, lot of, a ton of theology. It's a love letter. It talks about the love of God. It's not like Paul or Hebrews. It's not sophisticated in that sense. And so we tend to blow it off. But that's why you make a costly error when you overlook this letter. So the apostle and whoever is joining him in this letter immediately builds upon the gospel message. He says, look, we've seen Jesus. He's real. The Easter message is not a lie. You need to pay attention to this Easter message. And he goes on to build on it, but then he goes and he kicks off this letter then with this horrifying message. Right away, he wants to clear the decks. He takes this flashlight and he, and he shines it right into your soul. Click, and he like kicks the door of your heart open. He rips it asunder and he goes, click! And he shines this thing into your heart. Because John's an old man, and he knows you, and he doesn't care. He has no pretense. This is the message in John 1, 5 through 6. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's a harsh opening. Do you walk in darkness? Do you fellowship with God and say it while you're walking in darkness? Then John says, you are a liar. He gets this from the gospel. He, he connects it, at least. Uh, John 1, 4 through 5 the prologue, in him was the life, Jesus, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 319, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's what Jesus says. John 8, 12, 
Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You can't walk in darkness and have the light of life. In John 12, 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as the light, that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And we'll end with this. In all of these passages, Jesus is the light of the world. And the light in Scripture is equated with holiness, right? We see light coming from angels. We see light in Jesus in the transfiguration. We, don't ha- we haven't actually seen this. It's described to us as light, a radiating light. It's called kavod or holiness, right? And so this light is from God. The absence of light, then, this light is called darkness. It's not our darkness, but it's this absence of light. This absence of holiness is darkness, So the light of God, then, when you are filled with Christ, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you have this light. When you don't have the Holy Spirit in Christ, you have darkness. So what he's saying here, then, is you can't claim to have this light and have really be walking in darkness. You're either filled with the Holy Spirit or you're not. Right? You can't follow some checklist and have it. See, too many of us think that following Jesus is a checklist. But what John is saying and what he's about to tell you is that's a lie. Right? Following God is not a checklist. There are a lot of churches that tell you it is. It's not. You either have him or you don't. It's a relationship. And then this is expressed by the love you share. And that's what John is going to challenge you right? See, a lot of Christians have this harshness about them. Oh, I love God. But then there's this utter harshness and cruelty about them, this darkness that you're walking in, or you're living in sin, in intentional sin, right? So that's why these lifestyle sins are rejected in the gospel. I can be a Christian who struggles with particular sins, and we all do, even some dark ones. But I can't be a Christian who's committed to a particular lifestyle sin. Right? I can be a Christian who struggles with anger, but I can't be a Christian who's committed to anger. I can be a Christian who struggles with bitterness, but I can't be committed to bitterness. I can be a Christian who struggles with sexual temptation, but I can't be committed to sexual temptation. You see the difference? Whatever it is, there are lifestyle sins, and then there's com- that, that's a committed to it. That's walking in darkness. That's what John is talking about. If you are walking in this, right, then you're living a lie. You'll see people living this, uh, even in a subtle way. I, I see people who define their faith as politics, they're committed to this. It's not really their faith. This is their faith. But they're not really walking with Jesus. You, all kinds of things can be that commitment. Do you understand? Whatever it is. We're walking in this thing. We're not walking in Jesus. I can go on and on and give you a million examples. I'm just trying to give you some. It's an unpleasant. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
Ponder that for a while. This one cuts through all the bull malarkey that we tell ourselves. Not others. We can fool others. But the lie we tell ourselves. And that's what he's cutting through. It's the pompous, self-righteous lies. I'm holier than others because I do X. While they do Y. All the while ignoring all the other stuff I'm really doing. As if God doesn't really see. I'm godly but I'm all show. I'm holy, but there's actually no love in me. There's no light in me. When we shine a flashlight on the heart, that there is no Jesus there. And that's why the epistle of 1 John is so critical to our faith. It's a flashlight into our heart that cuts through the pretense and it exposes who we are. It exposes us for what we are. It's a challenging passage. It doesn't care if you're a brand new Christian, a pagan, a bishop, a housewife, a cop, a president, a janitor, an immigrant, native-born Nigerian, Filipino, or Russian. It searches your soul and shows you what's there. It exposes the truth and the lie. But John is using this light as a start, and that's why he flashes it at the very beginning of the gospel. He turns it on, he checks out your soul, and he says, right off the bat, where do you stand? And that's what he's checking out this morning. That's where we're starting. Use this verse, pray on it this morning, pray on it this week. Where do you stand? And then come back next week. And then John says, let's continue. Where are you? And then after you've checked yourself out, let's go on. Right? Let's go on. And that's what he's doing. Amen.